0: Uh, tell your Bible. Turn to Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. We're going to be uh, continuing our series on tell a good story. We're going to look today at someone that told a good story, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Anybody ever been told that life's not fair? Anybody ever heard that, right? Any, any of you parents out here ever said that to your kids, perhaps that? Uh, gonna get an amen in the house of parents today? Life's not any of you kids ever had your parents tell you that and you really didn't appreciate it. Yeah. All right. A poet once complained that life's not fair. He said a banker can write a bad poem and nobody says anything about it. But if a poet writes a bad check, everybody gets concerned. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Y'all apparently didn't. That's Apparently didn't. That's all right. One time in a press conference, President Jimmy Carter was asked a bunch of questions and a reporter seemed to get upset with him and mad. And he just said something to him, but I don't understand why that can be. And imagine today, in today's political environment, if somebody said this, Jimmy Carter just looked at him and said, well, life isn't fair. There are times when it feels that way, right? There are times when it feels like you're doing your best and it just doesn't seem like life is treating you fairly. We get stuck in the same job or we lose our job and other people around us get promotions or leave for better jobs. And, you know, you're doing the work and you're putting in the time and you're doing it with integrity and they're not necessarily doing that. And yet they seem to keep climbing the ladder and you're stuck. Life's not fair. Why is it happening to me? Try out for a high school athletic team and it's down to 20 and they cut it down to the final 15. And you know, just looking around and competition and what's happened, that you've outperformed at least 10 of the people on there. And you ought to be competing for a starting job. If not, definitely one of the first ones off the bench. And yet, when the cut comes from 20 to 15, your name's not on the list. You have difficulty conceiving a child. And people that you know are getting married and having children without any problem. And you watch how they handle their children how they parent their children it's not always in the most positive way and other people agree with you and you look around and you think well why can't we have a child we're gonna look today at the apostle paul at a moment in his life when he could when he does look back on what's happened to him and the truth is in the midst of that he could have said easily life isn't fair why is this happening to me In Philippians chapter 1, we're joining a story that's already been taking place. And what we see as we join this story is that Paul is in prison. He's in a Roman prison, which means he's under house arrest. He's under house guard, that he's got a guard chained to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, people end up in prison for a lot of different reasons. I read this week of the one of the most peculiar reasons I've ever heard. This is the story of a guy by the name of Lawrence Ripple. This is Lawrence. Lawrence is 70 years old. And Lawrence pled guilty in January to charges of bank robbery from a bank robbery in September of 2016. Now here's what's strange about the bank robbery. Ripple entered the bank, handed the teller a note, said, I need money. I have a gun. The teller handed over thousands of dollars to Ripple and Ripple proceeded To sit down in the lobby and wait for the police to arrive. An FBI agent was testifying in court and they were asked, Did Mr. Ripple give a reason why he decided to sit down in the lobby and not try to evade law enforcement? And the FBI agent said yes. Mr. Ripple said that he'd had an argument with his wife earlier in the day and he told her that he'd rather be in jail than with her any longer. He wrote her a note that said, I no longer want to be in this situation, went to the bank, robbed it, and then sat down to be taken to jail. Ripple now faces 20 years in federal prison and up to $250,000 in fines, but he is no longer with his wife, all right? Now, I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying that people end up in jail for a lot of different reasons, right? Now, Paul ended up in jail, not for a nefarious reason like that, not for a notorious reason like that, not for even a criminal reason. Paul ended up in jail for what reason? Why was he in jail? Because he was preaching the gospel. What I'm doing right now, he probably didn't use an example of a guy robbing a bank, but what I'm doing, preaching the gospel, got Paul in jail. Now, we get to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to see how Paul's attitude is. Look at what it says in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me... Now, that's an important place. We're going to stop there for a few moments. Because when he says, what has happened to me, it's sometimes lost on us what has happened to Paul. And Paul had had a terrible five-year stretch. Not one month, not one week. It hadn't been a bad couple of months. It had been a bad five years. Five years earlier, Paul is worshiping with some friends at the temple in Jerusalem. Some people that don't like him see him. Jewish people don't like him. They see him. They start a false rumor. They start fake news that Paul has brought an unclean Gentile into the temple. The news gets out and a riot begins to form and some hotheads gather all these people up. They go and they grab Paul. They put him on the ground and they proceed to beat him with the purpose of killing him. As they're beating him with the purpose of killing him, this commander sees it happening. He's in charge of keeping peace in the city. He stops it. He pulls Paul out. Assuming that Paul has done something terrible, he arrests him on the spot, takes him back, puts him in the barracks, tries to get reason from the people around there as he's investigating as to why Paul should be in jail. And they give three or four conflicting answers. So they say, well, we'll find out from Paul. And so they decide to interrogate Paul. Now, in modern terms, you would say that they used enhanced interrogation tactics. What they did is to get answers, they would rope guys' arms into a cross-like form. And then they would take a whip and they would use the whip until the tongue loosened. And as they got ready to start... Interrogating Paul, Paul says to them, Is it lawful to flog a Roman citizen without proper cause? See, y'all didn't understand the what just happened there because y'all didn't react at all. That would have been the dun dum moment, right? Like, ooh, Paul just burned them, all right? Because they were like, oh, he literally drops it. He's like, what are we going to do? We've arrested a Roman citizen without cause. got to figure out what's going on. So he calls in the Jewish people. again. give me a reason, give me a reason. They can't come up with a reason. He's like, i got to put him in jail for the night. But tomorrow we're going to figure this thing out. Because we can't have a Roman citizen in jail without any reason. The Jewish leaders discover, uh-oh, they're going to let him go. And so 40 of them decide that they're not going to eat or sleep until they kill Paul. And what they're going to do is demand a meeting with Paul present tomorrow, and they've got a group of 40 guys that are going to hang out and wait on Paul to be transported. It's like an old Western movie, and they're going to invade the caravan and kill Paul. The commander says, that can't happen on my watch. He finds out about it. He gets Paul in the middle of the night, sends him with all these guards. They take him to Caesarea. They put him there. There's a governor there by the name of Felix that's going to hear his case. The people down in Jerusalem hear that he's in Caesarea, so they make their way up there. They start to make their case again, and Felix goes, I don't even know what you're talking about. I can't arrest him for that. But suddenly he realizes that this Paul guy is more than just a normal guy. He's got lots of really influential friends that have become Christians and that they're fighting for him from the outside. And so Felix thinks, you know what, if I hold on to him a little longer, you know what might happen? I might be paid to let him go. And so Paul is under arrest in a barracks without any charge for two years. It'd been easy for Paul to go, you know, life's not fair. Why in the world am I here? Or after two years, Felix is relieved of his duties and another guy comes in and the other guy comes in and goes what's this guy Paul doing in prison let's find out what's going on with him let's either let him go or arrest him for real we'll do what we're going to do and so he says to Paul hey Paul here's what I want to do because I get conflicting reports I want to take you down to Jerusalem we're going to get in Jerusalem we're going to have a trial I'm going to get witnesses we're going to find out we're going to get to the bottom what happens and Paul says I'm not going to Jerusalem because Paul knows if he gets to Jerusalem he'll never leave and Paul, as a Roman citizen, had one other alternative. And he said, I appeal to Caesar. Which meant as a Roman citizen, he could go strictly and be, have an audience with Caesar. And as soon as he says that, the thing they have to do is get him to Rome. So after a few months, they put him on a ship. They send him off to Rome. Everything's going to be great. The problem is the ship runs into a hurricane. Now, Paul has been telling them they need to stay until spring, until the weather goes. He's had a premonition from the Lord. He's had a prophecy from the Lord. The captain won't listen to him. So they run headwind right into a hurricane. The ship is destroyed. The captain tells them, get to shore if you can. Hold on. Grab a a piece of wood from the boat and hold on. Miraculously, they all make it to shore. Another ship comes by, picks them up, takes them to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, Paul is... Put under house arrest. Now that sounds kind of nice. You get to stay in a house. The problem is house arrest meant that he had to be chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A new guard every six hours. When he went to sleep at night, he had to make sure his chains weren't under his head or under his body. He had to sleep with his arms out, chained to a Roman guard. Everywhere he went, the Roman guard went. Not only that, Paul had no way of getting any income and yet he had to pay the rent on the house he was using or he would have been thrown into a dungeon. And the whole time there, he's waiting on an audience with Caesar to plead his case and the problem for Paul is he knew Jerusalem would end in death, but in Rome, the Caesar he would see was a guy named Nero. If you know anything about history, Nero was not the most sane ruler in history. And so he spends his entire Two years in Rome when we read this passage. Two years he's been under house arrest without any charges leveled against him. Four years total in jail, no charges. And he says, what has happened to me? That's a lot, right? That's five years of a lot of stuff. What has happened to me, all of that, the imprisonment, the beating, the false accusations, the tearing down of a reputation, the being held hostage in a prison cell without any charges, all that has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ Jesus Moreover, verse 14 says, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fiercely. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. These preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Christ Jesus. My eager expectation and hope is that I should not be ashamed about anything. But that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now think about this. All that has happened to Paul, and yet in the middle of a prison cell chained to a Roman guard, he rejoices. There's not a better passage in Scripture in the New Testament, I think, than this one to show us what it looks like to have joy and confidence and hope in the midst of difficulty. It's one of the most relevant New Testament passages that we have about having joy in the midst of difficulty. And it gives us a few things for us to understand about how to do that. First of all, we see that in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of his trials, in the midst of all of that's going on, Paul stays focused on Jesus. That the gospel is the focus of his life and ministry. That the gospel is the center of who he is and what he does and what his life is about. He says, am I in prison? Yes. Am I chained to a guard? Yes. Is it a possibility that the moment I see Caesar that I will die? Yes. But is the gospel being preached? Yes. So I will rejoice. Is Jesus my Lord? Yes. So I will rejoice. Do I see the fruit of what is happening because of me being here. Yes, then I will rejoice. This isn't the only place that we see Paul in prison rejoicing. In fact, there's that whole story in Acts about Paul and Silas, right? Paul and Silas are in prison. What do they do? What do they, y'all know, what do they do? They sing, right? They sing praises to the Lord. They worship. They can't help but sing. One of my two girls loves to sing. She sings all the time. Any reason? No reason. She just loves to sing. I love to hear her sing. I love when she's singing. I love to hear that. I love to hear the fact that she's into that. A lot of times we're in the song, and a worship song will come on, or Christian, and she'll sing it with all her mind. It's just awesome for me. Her brothers are not as enthused about her constant singing. Okay, they're just not. Now, some of you had siblings. You understand that her brothers are not as enthused about her constant singing and sometimes will let her know that they would prefer that at this moment, if she could please not sing for a few moments. That's not how they say it necessarily, but that's what they mean from their heart. Right. Like, stop singing like now. Stop. Do not sing. Right. And you know what she does? She sings. Right. Because nothing's going to stop her from singing, all right? Paul is one of those people that he loved to praise the Lord. He loved to sing praises. He loved to shout praises. He loved to tell the gospel. And nothing was going to prevent him from rejoicing in the Lord. Even in circumstances where he is imprisoned in jail, when he is tied to a Roman guard, he is praising the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. What does it take for you to be in a mindset to praise the Lord? The right temperature and the right environment with the right music, with the right tempo, after two cups of coffee, good night's sleep, nobody crowding you on the road, making sure you're in the right spots. And if there are any believers in the history of the world that'll have reason to praise God for what they have in their lives, Those of us that live in the wealthiest nation that has ever existed as Christians among the wealthiest group of Christians that have ever existed ought to give praise and honor and glory to God on a regular basis. And yet many times we walk into this place on Sunday morning or we live our lives throughout the week and praise is not what is on our mind. Even in this place, we're only thinking of what's coming next. And Marie mentioned that in the first service, she asked how many of you are excited to be here and ready to worship this morning? And we literally got one woo and one hand raised, and about 150 stairs. And I don't want to be too hard on the first service, because my guess is, if we really took an inventory of your heart and my heart today, there are a lot of Sundays we walk into this place, and if that question were answered honestly, we wouldn't be ready. Paul, chained to a Roman guard, says, "I rejoice." He was dealing with critics, he was dealing with people who were envious of him, he was dealing with Rome itself, he had the Philippians in his mind, he wanted them to understand what was going on, and he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. He didn't get overly concerned about what other people were saying or what other people had. Did he get consumed with trying to measure himself against someone else? In fact, there were some people that were mad at Paul for appealing to Caesar because it meant that he had to go to Rome and he wasn't out telling the gospel where if he would have just faced his accusers, stood firm in what God had given him to do, that he would have been able to be out on the mission field. And they were mad at Paul for giving up his witness. And Paul is saying, I'm not worried about what they're saying. What I'm telling you is the gospel is being preached. People are being reached. Things are happening and I am rejoicing in the Lord no matter what my circumstances are. He stayed focused on Jesus. He fixed his eyes on the mission and particularly two areas were happening that he is so excited about. First of all, God's mission was being accomplished. Paul starts with a broad statement about how God was at work. When Paul says what has happened, he could have been referring to all that we talked about or he could have been referring just to a small section of it. But whatever it is. The impending trial or what happened five years ago, Paul is saying clearly whatever has happened has advanced the gospel. It hasn't stopped it. God's not been thwarted in his mission. There's lots of great things happening. In fact, this is what I love. So they thought, the Jewish people, the Romans thought, we'll send Paul to Rome. That's what he wants to do. We'll put him under house arrest. That will stop him from telling people about Jesus. And then they chained him to a Roman guard for six hours. Let me ask you a question. What do you think that Roman guard heard about for six hours? Right? The weather? You think they were talking about the weather? You think they were talking about what was, uh, good down at the local diner? What were they talking about for six hours? What was Paul talking about? The gospel. Now, I just think, I don't know how shifts worked back then. I don't know that they worked a five-day work week or whatever. But just imagine for a minute, you got a six-hour shift, five days. That meant for 30 hours you're hearing about the gospel from Paul. They thought they were going to keep him quiet. They just gave him a new guy to share the gospel with every six hours. And here's the thing. He says this in the midst of that. The people that he was talking to were some of the most elite soldiers in the Roman army. Because those were the people that kept watch over those that were going to Caesar. And some of the most influential people in the world, Rome was the center of the world at that moment. Some of the most influential people in the world are sitting next to Paul for six hours at a time hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't allow his circumstances to get him to the point where he did the woe is me, it's my party, I'll cry if I want to moment. He talked constantly about Jesus. Instead of living freely in places like Spain or walking around doing the gospel, talking about planting churches, he was in the most powerful city in the world on a regular basis sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel was advancing. God wins. And the truth is, we never know how God might use your suffering and mine for the glory of his name. One of the people that I've been reading a lot as I've been looking through Philippians, and one of the people that um, has written commentaries that I admire about this book in particular is a guy named Peter O'Brien. Now my guess is, many of you in this room may not have heard of Peter O'Brien, but Peter O'Brien was a guy that grew up in a non-Christian home. They had a neighbor who was a strong believer who went through a terminal illness. And the way she lived through that terminal illness so impressed Peter O'Brien's mom But his mom began to follow her and ask her questions and ask what kept her going. And in the midst of that, Peter's mom became a believer. Because Peter's mom became a believer, Peter became a believer. But not just a guy that heard about it and said, okay, I'll think about it. He launched himself into that. He went to school. He went to seminary. He got a Ph.D. He moved to India. And in India, he was in a place where he, he told thousands about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saw hundreds converted to Christianity. He then moved to Australia. And in Australia, he has been writing books for pastors and commentaries for scholars for many years. And my guess is if you would have said to that older lady in that small town who nobody knows the name of, if you would have said to her, hey, because of your suffering, God's going to use that to lead thousands of people to faith in India. And there are going to be sermons preached every Sunday that have been impacted because of your illness by this man that's going to write the commentaries. My guess is she would have said, absolutely, I'll sign up for that. But the thing is, she didn't know that was going to be the result when she walked through the suffering. God is sovereign. He's advancing his gospel. And we should look at every circumstance in our life as an opportunity to share the gospel with others. We have a team in Los Angeles, California right now. We have um, a couple people that are just returning, like getting back right now um, from Brazil. Brazil. We have another group of people going to Brazil this week. I leave this afternoon. I'm meeting up with a team in Los Angeles. And for the next several days, we are going to be sharing the gospel with kids, with adults. And it's easy for us to think about opportunities to share the gospel. We think about Los Angeles or we think about mission trips or we think about things that we set up. Listen, it's easy when you know that your purpose and your goal is to put a shoe on a child's foot. And while you're putting a shoe on the child's foot, explain the bracelet on his wrist to his mom and dad that are sitting in the room what the gospel is. Or like you're doing a, a, an eyeglass ministry where you're putting eyeglasses on an adult and the adult is reading John 3.16 to understand whether they can see through the glasses and you can explain to them what the gospel message is there. Or when you're in Los Angeles and part of what is built into the program that we do in sports camp or in vacation Bible school is an explanation of the gospel based on what we've done that day. It's easy to imagine those scenarios but just as important as that is the everyday interactions you have with people around you and whether or not you are sharing the gospel in a way that shows them the truth of God's love. At the Sun Baptist Convention, there were a couple of pastors. That I was just—I was struck by the ordinary nature of their conversion. So, one is a guy named Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Dallas, Texas area. He started a church planting network. He's seen God do amazing things in and through him. And Matt Chandler grew up in a non-Christian home, and he was saved when he decided to play high school football. He walked into the locker room first day of high school football, and a guy walked up to him that was team captain, leader of the team, and said to him, literally on the first day of football, he said, listen, you're new here. I'm excited about you being part of the team. I'm going to share the gospel with you at some point. You let me know when you're ready for that. Just a couple of days later, he shared the gospel. Matt Chandler, a couple of weeks later, became a believer in Jesus Christ. Ordinary situation, that guy said, this is what I'm supposed to do. Tony Morgan's another pastor and scholar who was in college. He said, I went to college to play baseball. I was not a believer, didn't come from a home of believers, didn't have any idea to be a believer. said, God put me on a baseball field at shortstop, and the second baseman was a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a devout believer in Jesus Christ, and he said, Stephen told me the gospel of Jesus Christ. I accepted it, and Tony Morgan is pastoring a church today, writing material for pastors all over the country. Just like the lady didn't know that walking through the terminal illness would lead to one place. Perhaps God's putting someone in your path this week. Let me ask you a question. When I ask you, what do you think that person heard about when they got chained to Paul for six hours? Almost everybody in this room immediately thought they heard the gospel. Let me ask you a question. If you got chained to someone for six hours, what would they hear? Paul was excited because the gospel was advancing. But secondly, related to that, he was excited. He was focused on the fact that people were hearing the gospel. It's not just that they were being they were that Paul was telling it. He says that some of the other people are hearing about what's happened to me. And because of that, they are being encouraged to speak. Paul was making an impact on those outside of the faith. There were about 9,000 of these specialized Roman guards, and many of them had come in contact with Paul in a two-year period, and they're talking to each other. But it also was giving pastors and preachers and those around them the courage, the encouragement to speak. Persecuted Christians often inspire us to be more bold in our proclamation. It is said that after Jim Elliott and his four missionary friends were brutally killed by the Alka Indians, That instead of missionary applications going down at Wheaton College, they skyrocketed as people said, I'm ready to go. He focuses on the courage and the boldness and what is happening in this place. In verse 20, Paul says that he will represent Christ with all boldness. In verse 28, he tells the church not to be frightened. The book of Philippians should cause us to be stirred, to be courageous as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It ought to give us boldness and courage. Francis Chan is a pastor out in Um, on the west coast was a pastor in san diego for a while and he tells a story of one of his staff members at his church he said honestly he did something i've always wanted to do but never been able to so he tells a story this staff member one day was driving along in california and he was behind this guy um who he could see um had to get because of somebody coming out had to veer over There was a guy on a bicycle riding next to the guy that had to veer over. And as he had to veer over, he gently kind of nudged the guy. And the guy lost his balance and almost fell. But he kind of regained his balance and stopped. The guy was shaken because he would had to pull over and kind of graze this guy. And so he stopped. The bicyclist got off of his bike and went over and started pounding on the hood of this other car. Staff member said that he saw him walk around to the driver's side, yank the driver's side open and start kicking the guy inside the vehicle. Now, he said when that happened, he got out to kind of see what was going on and he saw that the man inside was an elderly man. This guy's kicking him and punching him. So he says, i got to do something about this. He said, I had a decision to make. His daughter, his baby girl, was in the back of his own car. He thought, what am I going to do? So he said, I couldn't let him just get hit like that. So he ran up to the guy, pulled the guy off of him, and the guy was so mad, he started to hit the staff member. Started like hit him on the back and head, trying to kick him, trying to get back at the guy inside the vehicle. The staff member said he had a decision to make. He said, I had to decide, should I punch this guy in the mouth? He decided, yes. And with one uppercut punch, he knocked the guy out. The police came. They verified the story. Witnesses, when he punched the guy out, witnesses around started honking and clapping. All right. The officer said, how many times did you punch him? And he said, honestly, Pat, honestly, just once. He said, well, once was enough, and we're glad that it was. So Francis Chan tells this story to his congregation with the staff members sitting in there. He said, literally, they erupted in applause. He said, now, it wasn't just over the one big punch that they were excited, although that was a part of it. It says that he asked they were excited because he had stood up for this elderly man, that he had come to the rescue of someone that was in need. And he said, how many of you, Francis Chan asked his church, how many of you would have gotten out of the car, tried to stop this assault, even if the guy was bigger than you? And he said he looked around and most of the people were nodding in affirmation must have been a Baptist church. Nobody raised their hand. They said, most of them said, we would get out and do something about it. We couldn't let that happen. We would attack him. We would go after him. We would protect him. And then Francis Chan asked this question. How many of you would go and speak the gospel to him if the same man was sitting alone in a restaurant and you knew that he wasn't a believer? He said, why do we find it so easy to be courageous in physical matters? And are so cowardly when it comes to spiritual. Paul says that one of the reasons he's excited is because the gospel is being proclaimed. It's advancing. But also that there is boldness within the church. That Paul's story of difficulty was advancing the gospel and giving boldness. So what do we do with all of that? I got a couple of things first to think about as we wrap up today. First of all, in our lives, if we're going to do what God calls us, we have to put the gospel at the center of our lives. As we read the Bible, we want to respond properly and take appropriate action. And we see in the Bible that it's about God's action towards us. And when we get to this, we see that Paul has at the center of his mind, not his comfort, not what's good for him, not what is right, that feels right. He has the gospel at the center of his mind. At the center of his thinking, at the center of his emotions, at the center of his ambitions, at the center of his dreams, at the center of what he did, was the concern that the gospel advanced that it was being proclaimed. Anything else in this life will let you down. If the God of your life is comfort or control or success or approval, you're going to get let down. But if the message of Jesus is in the center of life, you won't be. Christians are invincible because no matter what happens to them, they still win. If Christians are killed, they go to be with Jesus. To die is gain. D.A. Carson says this, that the example of Paul is clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comforts, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all those are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel. What do you care about? What's your goal in life? Carson says, is it to make money, to get married, to travel, to see grandchildren grow up, to find a new job, to retire early, to have a great life after that? He said, none of those are to be despised. None of those are to be questioned. But the real question is whether those take hold of our lives so that Christ's central position in our lives, the gospel, is pushed to the edges or choked out of existence entirely. What are you devoted to? Secondly, we see from Paul here that we need to flourish wherever we are. If you've got your Bibles open, if you've got a way you can highlight this, verse 16 is an amazing verse. We just kind of read over it, but I want you to see it. Verse 16, he says there, and what the version I read, which is the Christian standard by, he says, knowing that I am appointed. In other translations, it says, knowing that I am put here. Paul says, basically, God has planted me here, and where I am planted, I will serve. I love this. They thought they were stopping the gospel, and yet they were putting him in a place where he could have more influence. Martin Luther once said that we don't know what we're praying for. We don't know what we need. God does. And we often think we can do better than God. He says, in fact, we pray for silver, but God gives us gold instead. He has bigger, better plans for us. That means that God puts some of you in jobs that's not ideal for you. God puts some of you in states of life that you don't really enjoy being in. And even in those moments of struggling and hard time, as God's planted you there, we ask the question, what is God doing in and among us? You see, Paul never asked, why is life not fair? Why is this happening to me? Paul asked, how can the gospel be shared? How can the gospel be advanced? Wherever I am. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. This encourages us to be courageous. Be courageous. Paul says that, he was hoping to speak with boldness. I don't know whether you know this or not. We're almost 20% through the 21st century. Right? Like it's easy to figure that out. Like some of you are like numbers, fanatics, you're like, no, we are 17.5% through with the 21st century, all right? And when things start happening in centuries, people are are a rush to give it a name, the century a name, the age of opportunity, the age of industrialization, the age of technology. Sociologists have begun to name the 21st century and there are lots of names kind of floating out there. But one of the ones that's most interesting to me is that they've called the 21st century the age of fear. They said it's ironic because Christians today in America actually live in one of the safest environments that Christians have ever lived in. In fact, I don't know whether you know this or not. I know you watch the news every night and you think it's getting worse. But it's safer to live in America today than it's ever been to live almost anywhere in the history of the world. Violent crime is down. Automobile accidents and stuff are down. If we could just keep people from texting, right? Health is better than it's ever been. People are living longer than they've ever lived. And yet people in survey after survey are more afraid today than they have been in America's history. Our politics are built on fear, no matter which side of the aisle you're on. News stories are always about fear because if you can get people afraid, you can call people to action. And yet in the midst of that, God has called us to be a people that aren't afraid. We're given a spirit not of timidity, not of fear, but of power and strength and hope. And the question that we have for us is, in this world that is consistently looking for reasons to be afraid, how can we be courageous and share the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ? A couple of things I want you to think about this week. I really want you to think about these. I don't want you to walk out the door and let it go when you start thinking about where you're going to lunch. Who is God going to place in your path this week that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is God going to use the season of life you're in right now to advance the gospel? And I'm going to ask you to partner with him and say, let's go. Let's pray together.